Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into the Pegasus podcast presented by Night Sports Now. I am Bailey Adams. And I'm joined, as always, by Christian Simmons. You can find us on Twitter at BaileyJAdams22, at ByCASimmons, and at Night Sports Now. Go ahead and throw us a follow over there because we'll get around to writing something for that website eventually, won't we, Christian? Um, we're here for episode eight, and we've, uh, we've got a little mini topic here we're going to cover before we get into our, our main topics. We're going to be talking about some coaching legacies in, in modern UCF football, and then do a little bit of uh, spring football preview. But before we get into those things, we've got something that's kind of bubbling and kind of putting Night Nation on edge right now. And that is, uh, of course, this whole thing going down at, well, actually it went down at LSU and, and the ramifications are, are affecting Kansas. Uh, Les Miles was, I guess they mutually agreed to part ways. And then AD Jeff Long was fired. And now there's an AD vacancy at the University of Kansas or Kansas, is it Kansas University? It's Kansas University, isn't it? KU. Yes. Whatever it is. Uh, there's a... <laughs> There's an AD opening at Kansas and this really like it, I don't know other, other ways, like it wouldn't really be a, an issue regarding UCF, but, you know, especially considering they just hired their AD Terry Mohajer, but it just so happens that Mohajer has ties to Kansas. And this has been, you know, mentioned as his quote unquote dream job by a few of uh, the, the reporters out there. And so there, his name's getting tossed around, a lot for this opening and you know we haven't heard anything yet about whether he's even considering interviewing but we also haven't heard him come out and say I am not a candidate just like Jim Sterk did uh, the Missouri AD when his name was being thrown around for UCF so everyone's just a little bit on edge wanting him to say something Christian is there any reason to panic about this uh, whole situation going down right now yes yes <laughs> and I don't understand where UCF Twitter's confidence has come from like all UCF fans are just like oh, come on, we would never lose our AD to Kansas. It's like, guys, it's literally he was born in Kansas. It's like his dream job. He coached there before. And I also have a question for fans because I've seen multiple UCF fans that have tweeted something along the lines of, are you kidding me? We wouldn't lose our AD unexpectedly to a school facing sanctions. Were you guys <laughs> here in January? Like we just did this. We literally just went through this. I'm not saying he's going to leave. I don't think it's like, oh, we're definitely losing Mahadra. I feel like if I was a betting man, I'd still gamble on him staying, but it's definitely like on the table. Kansas is absolutely going to reach out to him. I just can't believe, I don't know where this like security blanket, all UCF fans, except me are have where they're just like, yeah, this is fine. You know, we're not going to lose our 80 to a power five school. That never happens. I just, I don't get it. Well, not only that, but you mentioned about how he grew up in Kansas, grew up a Kansas fan. He's coached there before. It's his dream job. And people are like, oh, we'll never lose him to Kansas. Do we think like this didn't happen with Scott Frost in Nebraska? Because, I mean, we just learned this lesson, what was it, three years ago? That's different. That was a coach. It's, the, it's literally the <laughs> same thing, except not the same thing. But, no, it's, it's the same principles, the same idea. And it, it's kind of you have to take the idea whole. It's, you know, Kansas is a mess right now, especially in football. But you have to take that out of it. You have to take the fact that even if they didn't, weren't going to face sanctions, Kansas football hasn't been uh, – Kansas football is just a mess. It's, it hasn't been good since that random year in 07, right? It was 07, 08 where they were like pretty decent for a couple of years and they're just a, a dumpster fire every year after that. But you have to take that out of the equation. You do have to consider also that's a great basketball school. You know, it's not only about football when it comes to athletics in college. Um, so yeah, you have to kind of just take that out of the equation and think about this is Mohajer. This is supposedly his dream job. He's probably going to think about it. You know, they're going to reach out to him. He'll think about it, but I just, it would be, <laughs> it'd be pretty, pretty wacky to, to see this, go down and see UCF have to find a new AD after a month and a half 
And after this AD has just hired a football coach, you know, and then I think people are like, oh, Gus wouldn't leave. And no, Gus wouldn't leave. There's no, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not worried about that. Gus and there's, there's no worry about that. So, I mean, there, at least there's that. That's like the silver lining. If you're, you know, panicking about Mohajer potentially leaving, Gus Malzahn's here and he's not going to leave after a couple weeks to take the job at Kansas. That's not going to happen. But yeah, I mean, there is a potential, the potential for Mahajer to, to up and leave after just such a short time at UCF. And I know, I mean, the fan base would, would be enraged and just, you know, all the stuff that he said about UCF and, you know, the potential and about building it for the future and all that just kind of goes out the window because he finds out, you know, oh, my, my dream job at Kansas is opening. So I don't know if I'm, if I'm, I'm kind of with you, if I was a betting man and, and I am sometimes uh, gamble responsibly people um, that I just think if I was a betting man, I, I wouldn't say he's going to go to Kansas. I, w- I would say he, he's probably sticking around, but there's still just that little bit of uneasiness right now going around and, and it, <laughs> it's definitely warranted. I um just the whole notion of like, Oh, all that stuff he said about UCF, about all the potential. It's like the great news is the last few years have really, nope you know UCF fans are used to people telling us how much potential we have and then leaving so at least that would be par for the course but I don't and that's the other thing that's bothering me is a lot of UCF fans are holding on to and like I said I don't think he'll leave because his family just got settled here and everything and I you know he was at Arkansas State for a long time and it this was not the first place that tried to get him away I mean he came to UCF because he thought he could build something special here so I'm not like he's out the door but also for people being like, well, oh, their football team is awful. It's like, it's a whole athletics department. And obviously basketball is the brand for them there. And secondly, it's not that, like, I truly don't think it would be that difficult for him to get the football program, at least sort of in the right direction. Their last AD just made horrible hires. Like Les Miles was a remarkably stupid hire for that job. And I feel like everyone saw that coming. It's like, hey, this guy, his entire career has had SEC resources basically use that to and we're going to take him to the school with is dealing with scholarship limits and has no resources at all it's like what's stopping Mahajer from just going and hiring like army's coach to run triple option and then there you go within a few years you'll be like five and seven which for them is like great news so this idea that he just won't touch that job because the football program is too bad it really I just I don't think it's that hard of a thing where as long as you get one higher sort of right which for them is four or five wins he can coast on that so I, I just don't see that as a thing like I don't get why people just automatically assume that's going to turn him away. I just don't get it, but yeah. Yeah. And we'll move away from this in just a second. But I think the other thing is like, logistically he's, he's already gone through two coaching hires in this, just this cycle alone. And if he left for Kansas, it would be a third one. And I I mean, I don't know that he'd want to take, he, I mean, he could do it. I'm sure he's already done two. He can do three, but I don't know that he's going to want to have to deal with that um, going over to Kansas. But yeah, I mean, we'll see you in the, in the coming days. Hopefully by the time you're listening to this, um, you know, something, something has come up and, and he's, he's kind of put out the fires of, of everybody's worries. So um, we'll, we'll just have to see what happens there, but we're kind of going to move on. Uh, of course, Gus Malzahn is, has been on the job for a few weeks now, and, you know, there's a lot of excitement, a lot going on. And we thought this would be a good opportunity to kind of just go through some of like the modern UCF football uh, history and look at the, the last few coaches and kind of just examine their legacies, see what, you know, what the fan base thinks about them, what the fan base, we, what we think the fan base should think about them and kind of just give our thoughts on, on these three guys um, prior to, to Gus Malzahn. We can talk about what Gus Malzahn, what his legacy could look like long-term. But, of course, we have to start with George O'Leary, who was here from 2004 to 2015. Um, you know, really deserves a lot of credit for, you know, getting the getting Spectrum Stadium, or I guess at the time Bright House Network Stadium, getting the on-campus stadium. It's also know, not Spectrum it. Stadium right now. It really isn't. It's, it's, <laughs> it's um, 
Haley has <laughs> a dog, me. by the way. Yeah, my dog, <laughs> like my dogs are, are not happy with me messing up the, the stadium's name, of course. You looked like um, for a second you were just going to try to play that off. Like your face was just like, yeah. what, how can I just act like that didn't happen? <laughs> yeah, it's it's the dogs. They're they're going a little crazy. But yeah, so big, <laughs> big ups to, to Georgia Leary for, you know, getting an on-campus stadium at UCF. And then, of course, the success they had four conference titles and a Fiesta Bowl win while he was here. And Christian, I know you've taken to Twitter a ton over the last few years because people love trashing Georgia Leary. And I know you have a lot of opinions. What do you feel like Georgia Leary's legacy is? And why do you think there's so much ill will towards this guy who did so much for UCS program? It's a super, super complex question. And it's one that I've really gotten into it on people of Twitter before. And I think what it comes down to is a mix of a couple things. Obviously, no one's arguing that by the end of O'Leary's tenure, things weren't good. Obviously, 0-12 was a disaster. He totally lost the locker room. And I think what basically happened was that as for as much success as he had, not just here, but at Georgia Tech, I, it, college football just kind of passed him by as time went on, which happens with older coaches. And that was sort of the result of what happened at the end there. But people forget that he won a conference title his second to last year and the year before that. And I think part of what it's come down to with, because his legacy how he was thought of even in 2015 versus now is dramatically different. Like fans don't like him anymore. And he was a bad coach. He was horrible holding this program back, blah, blah, blah. And I think that part of it is just, you sort of like, I, I think the UC, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. The UCF fan base from 2016, I think is about half the size of the 2021 UCF fan base. That's about what I would say. I think the fan base is about doubled in size. Uh, the new half that didn't really care about UCF previous, they don't care about O'Leary because they weren't here. They just seem as that old guy that sucked when Owen 12. But what's happened is I think those opinions have kind of trickled and permeated enough in the fan base and now the general fan base. I mean, I've, I've interacted with people on Twitter who I know have been UCF fans for a long time. And when O'Leary comes up, they're like, oh yeah, garbage coach. Thank God we finally got past him. And it's like, guys, UCF, pre-O'Leary UCF was not a good program. It had no success, no conference titles, no bowl game appearances. We're not even talking about ranked seasons or BCS bowls or anything. It was, it was a nothing program and getting him was a coup. He was a big time coach. I mean, he was a power five level coach and he came in, stayed for a decade and built this program and laid the foundation for what it became. And fans just not only discount that, but I mean, his legacy is just, and I know I'm kind of rambling here, but his legacy has just taken such a hit these last few years since UCF sort of took off. It's kind of crazy because, you know, I mean, they have that saying, never forget where you came from. And I think UCF fans in a lot of ways have forgotten where this program you know came from. I think, they look at that 0 and 12 season as, oh, that was like the beginning of the program we've built since then. And like you said, that's just not what happened. O'Leary was here for a decade and he built, you know, he got the stadium on campus. He, you know, built a winner at UCF, proved it could be done, got them to the BCS, you know, whether the youngest was the youngest program to win a BCS bowl, right? Or was it even a peer in a BCS bowl? It was the, I believe it was the youngest program to go to one, let yeah, alone to win go one. to one. And none the, yeah. And then they, they upset Baylor and get the Fiesta Bowl win. And, you know, people just kind of gloss over that. And I know it's it's kind of like that on a national scale, but it's just weird to see within the UCF fan base how people will gloss over that too. I mean, like there's there was just almost as if there was no success before Scott Frost. And and I think part of the reason, I don't know if it, this is it. I mean, I'm, this is just kind of me speculating, but it just feels like when Scott Frost got here and implemented the style of football that he brought, it kind of just made like there's such a stark difference between, you know, UCF fast and what Georgia O'Leary was known for and the type of style that his teams played. It was such a big difference. And there was such a bad taste in the mouth from 2015 
that everyone was like, oh, that style like sucks. And that's why like, oh, we, were, we weren't anything before Frost. He brought, you know, like, mod- he modernized our program. And, you know, to an extent in terms of style, he did. But that's just a difference of style. Like the, the style that O'Leary had, you know, save for those couple, of, you know, some, some bad seasons here and there. But save for those few seasons, his style still worked. It obviously did. I mean, they won four conference titles and they won the Fiesta Bowl playing more of like, you know, a defense first run heavy kind of offense where, you know, it's, it's different than what the, than what UCF runs now for sure, but it still worked. And I think it's just like people kind of just view him as, Oh, this archaic coach. But at the time, almost everywhere was like that. This whole, you know, spread offense up tempo style has become more and more prevalent throughout college football over the last few years and last several years, I should say now, but at the time that was just kind of how it was for, for a lot of programs and it worked at UCF. I don't know why people kind of look at or O'Leary and be like, Oh, you know, that old school was so boring. I don't remember people saying that the 2013 team was very boring. You know what I mean? That there's, there's no one had that opinion because in 2013, <laughs> yeah. what is modern college football offense was just sort of being invented. So yeah, no one was compared. There was no, I mean, Oregon was like the one school doing that. So it wasn't yeah. like a comparison. And if you look at the 2013, the like game by game, every game was entertaining. I don't know where this whole, like, Oh, it was boring football. Those games were entertaining games. They were different than what UCF plays now. I and mean, they were different. If you look at the 2017 season, you look at like the classic games from that season, 49-42, um, was 62-55 and all those. That's different than the, you know, the big, uh, you know, barn burner games that we got in 2013. But there were still some classic games that came out of 2013 and it wasn't boring football. So it's, it's just weird for, for O'Leary to kind of be branded as like, oh, this boring old guy who didn't, you know, didn't have um, you know, got passed by. And yeah, by, by 2015, maybe college football did pass him by. But over his entire career, you know, he definitely did so much for UCF that just kind of gets like swept under the rug. And it's like, oh, Danny White, Scott Frost, they're, you know, they get the credit for what UCF is now. When George O'Leary, he built the foundation just almost from scratch, really. No, and it's like you look at O'Leary. So he got three years in the AAC, which I feel like AAC is modern era for UCF. And in three years, he got two conference titles and a BCS win. Like, I feel like that's a pretty solid. And like you USF said, yeah. would murder for that. USF's never going to have that. Like, ever. I know, but I think <laughs> you, you, USF would like, they would sell their souls for that. No doubt. Oh, without a doubt. A lot of programs would. Most of the AAC yeah. program, if you could give it, it I, this is actually an interesting hypothetical. If you went to the average group of five team, we're going to open an all group of five teams and said, hey, we're going to give you a three-year span. And one of those years, you're not going to win a game. And the other two, you'll win a conference title in both years. And one of those years, you'll go to a New Year's Six. I feel like 90% of group of five fans would be like, absolutely. I would love for my team. I've taken that in a heartbeat. Yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's it's funny that just because I think it's because that last season he resigned at 0-8, I think it was. Yep. That's, that's the lasting impression that he left. But if you look at the whole scope of what he did at UCF, you know, those, he had that season and his first season, they also went winless, which is, I mean, if, if you're looking at Georgia Lee and you say, oh, they went winless twice, you know, you're, you're choosing to focus on the negatives. I mean, yeah, those are two really bad seasons. You also, and- you can't, uh, people, it bugs me so much when people quote the 2004 winless season, the program was a dumpster fire when he took over and he basically took a year to completely clean it out and start from yeah. scratch. That's how that happened. That wasn't like, oh, he's a bad coach. That was back in the olden days, but when coaches had more than two years to turn around a program <laughs> that was how it worked you came in you had a really bad year to clean out whatever was there you didn't want and then you started and in his second year they played for their first ever conference title game and went to their first ever bowl game yeah and so i mean if you if you're choosing to focus on you know the the winless seasons or 
you know, the fact that there's the style of play. And I, I don't know that many people really look at the, the whole Notre Dame thing and oh, he lied on his resume. I don't know if that's really anybody's gripe with him, but people sometimes will, when, when they're kind of trashing earlier, they like to bring up, you know, that kind of stuff. And of course there's the, the unfortunate situation with Eric Blanchard that, you know, if, if those are your reasons and why you kind of feel like his legacy's tarnished, I can't really argue with that, of course. But if you're looking at what he did for UCS football program on the whole, what he did for, you know, in terms of, of winning on the field, bringing the stadium to campus. I mean, you can't look at George O'Leary as, as anything else than, you know, a pioneer for what UCF football is now. Yeah. And like I and like you said, if those are there, if those are your reasons, I I've got nothing to say. That's fine. Valid. But I just, yeah, yeah, that's totally fine. I just, UCF fans I talk to, those aren't their reasons. Yeah. No, and, the UCF, the UCF fans, I mean, like the ones you talk to and the ones that are, are constantly even un, unprovoked, really bringing up George O'Leary and, oh, like, so glad we got away from that. It's just casual comments on Twitter. Yeah. Like, it'll be like, there's a highlight video of like Dylan Gabriel, like throwing a nice pass and people are like, God, could you like, such a such a departure from when we were stuck with O'Leary and it's like all right guys listen yes the uniforms were bad I get that trust me that was bit actually there was a story in the Orlando Sentinel and I think like 2012 so if someone can find this clip let me know because I just remember reading about it later was that at one point uh the UCF's equipment equipment manager at the time was trying to convince O'Leary to let him design some cooler uniforms and he brought in a booklet with what he had come up with for O'Leary to see and O'Leary picked it up looked at it and threw it across the room and didn't say a word. And when he asked about it, he said, why'd you throw it across the room? He's like, I saw black pants. <laughs> so definitely an old school coach, but is yeah. it, is it true? Or is it just kind of like one of those old folk oh tales that he didn't want players wearing, they, he didn't want to wear black uniforms at night because the quarterback wouldn't be able to see his receipt. Was that true? <laughs> was that actually a true thing? Cause I've seen it thrown around, but I don't remember if it's ever but like, as far as I know, that is a true thing. Oh my gosh. That that and that and where that and where that really came to a head. I know I've said it on the podcast before. If you're a new listener, hello, welcome. I'm like, I've I've been going to UCF games pretty much my whole life because I'm born and raised in Orlando and my dad went here. And there was a very famous game in 2013 where for those of you who don't know, in 2013, UCF did something incredibly unusual, which is they decided they were gonna have an alternate helmet after <laughs> wearing a single helmet from 2007 through 2012. It was like it was a really stupid helmet. It looks horrible. It was black with a weird, it was like the old like. I, it was like the old like i don't know it, the helmet was just not good it was a pattern Revol- it was that christian it was revolutionary is what it was it was something but anyway it was a black <laughs> helmet with a big gold like hammerhead looking thing in the middle it was a strange it was a strange design but of course Bad. because we've been deprived of anything at the time we were like this is amazing i'm so excited about this helmet <laughs> and all season ucf they were playing usf again for the first time in years it was gonna be a home game they were pitching all year blackout 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 and my like my ticket for the game had UCF in an all black uniform, black helmet, black jersey, black pants, and with no prior warning or like, hey guys, they run out of the tunnel. The special black helmets, black pants, gold jersey, <laughs> same old pale gold jersey, and it was just like, and when they asked, were asked about it, it was just O'Leary was just like, yeah, no, I don't want to wear black helmets, so we just didn't do that. But the thing is, like, I I recount stories like that, and I like laugh at that and think that's funny. And of course, that was in a season where UCF went twelve and one and won a Fiesta Bowl in the conference title. But there are UCF fans on Twitter who, if I tweeted that, they would be like, "This is why O'Leary was a poison for the program." And yeah. like, he wouldn't let the players wear black jerseys. And it's like, guys, it was it was twenty thirteen. It was a different era for college football. Yeah, you would think if if anyone is gonna like be up in arms about George O'Leary and, and his uniform decisions, it would be you. Yeah, but if you if you can laugh it off, I think the rest of the fan base can kind of laugh it off. 
And my other favorite except, thing, <laughs> my other favorite thing was UCF. 2015 after he left those final four games. Like now that there was no one to stop them, UCF was just doing weird stuff. Like they wore like <laughs> white, white, black on the road, which they never done before. And like I remember, I literally went to the USF game that year, which was the last game of the season when they were 0 and 11. And the only reason I was really like, I want to go is because they were like, we're going black jerseys and black pants at the same time. And I was like, I have to go see this. And that was why I went and they lost by like 40. Oh my gosh. But yeah, I just, I mean, just to wrap up and we can move on to some other UCF coaches. I, my take on O'Leary as someone who literally was at pretty much all, every single home game he coached in his entire UCF tenure is there were down moments. There were bad moments. There was obviously off the field stuff that was troublesome and not good. And I, but what it just comes down to at the end of the day is if you are happy with where UCS football program is now, then you can't discount O'Leary because O'Leary is the one that made this program what it is. He's the one that got them an indoor practice facility, on-campus stadium, all these advantages we just take for granted now that's let UCF become this premier group of five team. He's the reason that's here. So I know that he wasn't flashy. I know it's not the style you like. I know that UCF's had a lot of success since, but they had a lot of success before too. And you can't just discount everything that happened pre-2017. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that there were down moments. There was some troubling off the field stuff that, you know, we don't we don't mean to just gloss over it. It's just that I, I don't think out of respect that we should, you know, harp on it too much. You know, it, it's just it's just not something we need to to go into. Everybody knows what yeah, happened. Yeah, it's not a thing to gloss over. We talked about before the podcast if we were gonna talk about O'Leary if we wanted to get into that topic, and I just felt like it wasn't something that yeah, we not, really not have a right have a right to talk about. <laughs> exactly. So so all that, you know, we don't mean to gloss over any of that, all that serious stuff. But if you're looking purely at what George O'Leary did for UCF, you know, as a program, yeah, you can't be happy. You can't be, I don't think you can be a UCF fan you know, now like that's, that's been here along the whole way and not know like deep down in your heart that George O'Leary is a huge part of your happiness now because he did so much for this program. Yeah. And, and if you're not a fan of him, fine, but yeah. you can't sit here and say he was a bad coach or that UCF, he hindered UCF. You just can't yeah. have that argument. There's no way. And, and you know, of course, 2015 happened. He, they went 0 and 12 and that led into 2016, uh, the first season under Scott Frost. He took uh, an 0-12 team to 6-7 and in one season. Um, and then the next year, of course, 2017, UCF went 13-0, um, played them all, won them all, claimed the national championship, was awarded, uh, awarded a spot in the NCAA record books by the Collie Matrix for the national championship, got the banners, got you know the, the signage up in the stadium now. And, of course, Scott Frost did leave after that season. Um, actually, after the American, American Athletic Conference Championship game, you know, took the Nebraska job. It was announced. Then he did come back and coach the the Peach Bowl, which at the time I think people were like, "This is kind of weird." And I look back on that, and that's part of the reason I don't. You know, I, I always have a spot, a soft spot in my heart for Scott Frost because he did that. He didn't have to do that, but I mean, he took the whole. Everyone, everyone focused on. He took the whole coaching staff. You know, he left UCF for dead, whatever. But you know, he came back and finished the job with those players, and I know that meant a ton to the players. And it should mean a lot to the fans, too, that he came back and, and gave us that special moment, that special game uh, in Atlanta against Auburn. Um, but I think what we kind of we kind of see sometimes on Twitter and just a, there's a contingent within Night Nation that roots against him at Nebraska. And I don't know if it's just sour grapes for him leaving or if they're just, you know, really just not wanting to see him do well outside of UCF. But why do you think that is? Why do you think there's just the significant? And I don't know. I don't 
I think sometimes I forget where you stand on Scott Frost because we can, you, I feel like you go back and forth sometimes. So I'm kind of just curious I, like what you view, how you view his legacy. I kind of see you right now kind of like laughing, smiling, and I feel like you might just turn around and trash him. The, listen, the, oh, <laughs> this is a historic moment in that I feel like I'm finally in the, like the majority opinion with UCF Twitter because I feel like I'm always the one who's saying something to take. I, I, I just, I think that Scott Frost has more than any other UCF coach, an absurdly complex legacy for a number of reasons. I absolutely enjoyed watching him lose games in Nebraska his first couple seasons. <laughs> I would watch Nebraska to root for them to not win. I'm past that now because now I just feel bad for him. But, and it really, and this is why I think it's complex is it had nothing to do with him. I, I people, I mean, he, he, got my respect forever for coming back for the peach bowl. Like when Memphis made the cotton bowl and Norvell got the FSU job, he was like, bye guys. Good luck with Penn state. Have fun. <laughs> like that was very unusual. I think the only, the only other time that's happened is urban Meyer stayed at Utah after he'd gotten the Florida job to coach them. Yeah. In, uh, the Fiesta bowl, whichever BCS bowl they were in that year in the early 2000s. So he has my respect for that. But then the flip side of that would be, because everything's so complex would be like, well, didn't he kind of have to, since he took the entire coaching staff, like Norvell didn't take the entire coaching staff. <laughs> And, you know, so it's just kind of like how much of it was that was that he basically looked at, well, UCF is going to have a bunch of GAs coaching the team. Um, but the reason I root against him at Nebraska, at Nebraska at first, and I know it wasn't nice, um, was, and it wasn't him, it was just national media created this BS narrative that there was nothing special about UCF and there was everything special about Frost. And I mean, I, UCF's built a brand for itself since then, thanks to the Fiesta Bowl year after and winning 10 games and getting ranked the year after that. But I mean, you got to think back to 2017, even after the Peach Bowl, no one expected UCF to be good in 2018. It was like, yeah, Frost, our holy savior, Scott Frost came and lifted this horrible program from nothing. And now they'll fall back to nothing as he goes to do the same at Nebraska. And it just got to the point where it was so disgustingly ill-informed that I was just like, I need to see this guy go bomb in Nebraska because I need people to understand nationally that it was not him. It's the brand. I mean, UCF has had, I've got a stat for you, UCF has played in three major bowls. They've had a different head coach for each of their bowls. I mean, that's so unusual. All these schools that rise up for big games like that, it's because they get that one special coach. UCF is one of just three schools since 2010 that have been to three major bowls or more and had a different coach for each one. The other two are Ohio State and Oregon. So this is like this notion at the time that everything that's good at UCF is because of Frost. I just was done with it. And it wasn't his fault, but I was just like, I needed him to come back down to earth so people understood that he wasn't the reason UCF is good. I get that. I understand that. Um, and I, I think it, it is, like you said, now you kind of just feel bad for him. And I think all of I, that, I want him to win every game now because I just feel awful. Like, yeah, and I think, I think all of that like media, like national narrative has obviously died by now considering what's happened at Nebraska since he got there and, and how UCF has continued to win. Um, but I, I think too, what's, what's important to note is that just he left, he left for Nebraska. And I, I think we, I referenced this a couple weeks ago is that I don't know that like, I mean, he probably would have left eventually. He definitely would have, but that Nebraska job opening up when it did was just, it just created a bad situation for UCF. Like, cause Frost very clearly loved UCF and loved Orlando is, you know, said it a billion times how special this place was, but I think he truly meant it. And I think, had you know had the Nebraska job not been open, had Nebraska not been such a big you know, <laughs> there's such a big dumpster fire of a program when they were in that season and you know in that time, they wouldn't have had the opening. And I don't think he would have left for you know a few more years uh, at, at the least. 
But this and is so, why it's such a complex legacy, though, because it's ne- but now it's which narrative do you want to believe? If that's the narrative that you buy, that this was an opportunity he couldn't pass up because it was his alma mater and where he played. I get that. But then how do you square that with that he interviewed with Florida? Yeah, no, I, th- I think the whole time and I don't know what the, what the truth is behind all this and I don't know if, if it ever really came out, but it felt like he was gaining leverage. And I don't know if that's, I'm, I'm just speculating at this point, if he was just using that, that job to get leverage with, or that interview to get leverage with Nebraska, or even to get leverage with UCF in, in terms of his contract. But I don't know. I just don't think he would have actually left for Florida. I, I think that this was just such a unique opportunity for him to go back home, back where he, you know, he played and where he grew up to coach Nebraska and try to turn them around. And it hasn't worked out for him. Obviously you just, you just can't get the recruits to run that kind of system at nebraska like he used to be able to you know there is he, he um, was i think he underestimated that honestly i let me tell you there is a video video on youtube and i'm not going to say what it's called or where to find it but i've told you about it bailey when i watched it of some account put up scott frost giving a coaching clinic to high school coaches uh, oh this was, yeah this was after the 2016 season before 2017 where they went undefeated and in the video he casually mentions how the system he runs at ucf would never work at a school like nebraska is what he says in the video um uh, so uh, he knew what he was walking into <laughs> it's yeah. not like he didn't understand yeah. the challenges but it's just i guess, bet, I guess he bet on the system calls. and he bet on himself and yeah and he, he took the opportunity he felt like he had to do and i know there was there was some family stuff involved too and obviously getting the chance to to go back home uh is obviously a huge thing for him but yeah i think to an extent it is such a, such a complicated legacy because it was it was such a short time it was such a short tenure at ucf it was two years he went from you know 0 and 12 to 6 and 7 to 13 and 0 and you know left fans with this magical season in 2017 but really (laughs) he left right after that you know you always kind of were left wondering like what would have happened next and i know obviously 2018 we'll get on to hypo in a second and you know they they ran the table um until uh, the fiesta bowl in 2018 but you kind of just wonder and i kind of wonder what everything would have looked like had frost stayed and of course, had McKenzie Milton not gotten injured. Well, that but that's the thing is because that's where I feel like I fall in the minority. Is yeah. I uh, the what changed UCF was Milton's injury. It wasn't a coaching change, and we, we can talk about this when we discuss Josh Heupel's legacy as well. But I'm, you know, Scott Frost was good when McKenzie Milton was his quarterback, and he was bad when he wasn't. And Josh Heupel was good when McKenzie Milton was his quarterback and bad when he wasn't. So I just at what point do we just kind of have to wonder? Was Frost special, or was the quarterback he brought here special? And he still gets the credit for bringing him here. But, right. you know, which which one was it? And that's also what I kind of wonder, too, because I think had had Frost stayed and had, you know, Milton stayed healthy, we would have probably seen or we would have seen a couple more years of Milton. But then I wonder I kind of just wonder what Frost's next act would have been like. I know I know Hypo brought in Dylan Gabriel, who is obviously a great quarterback, um, but he's not I don't think he's the the same kind of I mean, he obviously hasn't been the winner that McKenzie Milton was. So I just kind of wonder, you know, what the trajectory would have been like for UCF had Frost stuck around, had he, you know, continued to coach Milton and then brought in Milton's successor. Maybe it still would have been Gabriel. I, don't I think know. it still that's, would have been Gabriel because when if crazy you remember, if you remember, it was the, like Heibel wasn't interested in Gabriel. It was Milton just pestering the hell out of the coaching staff? So you got to look at this guy. You got to look at this guy. And because yeah. because Gabriel wasn't really exactly perfect for what Heibel wanted to run either. And I mean that hurt him these last couple of years. But I think it. I think it, there's a good chance. I mean. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a good chance it's still Dylan Gabriel. But like like we said, the other thing I want to say is the, obviously this hype, because it's such a hard hypothetical because Milton's injury is so important to it. Right. But I think there's a chance. Like we, 
were waiting for that injury all of 2018. Like Milton, like I remember like every game we were talking about, like this guy's going to get hurt. This guy's going to get hurt. Cause he was just play, like, he just was, he was, he was not sliding. He was just every, yeah. like, and I don't know if that was what Hypo wanted him to do, but I mean, it, it was just definitely something that felt like it was coming. So I don't know if it necessarily, maybe it's obviously it was such a one in a million hit that created that bad of an injury, but I don't think we can just say flat out. Yeah. Milton would have stayed perfectly healthy if Frost had been the coach versus Hypo. Right. Yeah. And it is, it's such a complicated hypothetical because it's it was obviously such a massive event and such a such a freak injury that that caused that but yeah it's it is uh i think something that's going to last for forever really is this whole idea was it frost was it milton because we'll see you know we'll see how you know ucs future looks now um and but you know before we get to malzahn we have to move on to hypel who i know you said frost had such a complicated legacy and, and probably like one of the most complex out of all ucf coaches but i feel like hypel's i don't know maybe it's not that complicated just because he's so like you widely disliked but it's still somewhat complicated because like you said with Milton as his quarterback you know he didn't lose a game and and even we, the we, first we year of 2019 wonder, I mean yeah. like or, or the first year of 2019 the first season with Gabriel <laughs> in 2019 I mean UCF wasn't bad that year they went 10 and 3 and right. they finished ranked I mean that was a good year right so I mean they he, they were undefeated under Milton or with Milton as quarterback and then without Milton he went 16 and 8 and I know some of the fan base kind of started turning on him in 2019, but mostly everyone else kind of joined in in 2020, wanting him fired, wanting him gone. It led to, you know, people hating us because we said, hey, UCF doesn't have the money to fire a coach and hire a new one. And, you know, Danny White ended up giving them, you know, the, the means to do that by, by taking Hypo with him to Tennessee. And we weren't wrong. I, I just want to put that out there. Christian and I weren't wrong. UCF did not have the money to fire him. They just got lucky that, you know, they were given the money and he was gone and they got to hire Gus. Malzahn. You guys have no idea what a godsend that money was like UCF was doing bad financially. I mean, and that wasn't like a secret. Danny White was like, guys, we don't have money. <laughs> and like he like that was the part I understand, like fans would be like fire Hypel. And then Danny White would be like, did you know that we're 12 million in the hole? And they'd be like, fire him anyway. And it's like, guys, <laughs> but I mean, that UCF, it seems like UCF is in a much better place financially now, thanks to these buyouts. So it just we, we weren't like that. <clears throat> I'm just going to get on a again because i'm still so annoyed with how i got pegged as you know why does christian simmons love josh heupel it's like the i was Heupel defender i was just being realistic there was no way they could have fired him there was no world where that was happening yeah and like you like they were just extended this kind of lifeline where they were able to they were able to get a new coach and, and make everyone happy you know happy now not happy on the night that it was happening but happy now with a, a new coach and you know, the ability to move forward from Josh Heupel. And I kind of was, was looking at this last night as, as I was preparing for this and saw on, on UCF's Wikipedia page, I first mistakenly told Christian it was on Josh Heupel's Wikipedia page, but it was on, it's on UCF's, uh, UCF footballs. And this is what it says about Josh Heupel at the end of his section. It says, on January 27th, 2021, despite his teams at UCF getting worse every successive year since he took over, Heupel was hired to coach Tennessee Volunteers by new athletic director, Danny White, the same one who hired him at UCF. So not, not exactly a ringing endorsement by whoever uh, wrote that Wikipedia entry, but I just thought it was kind of, kind of funny and kind of representative of, of what his legacy is going to be, you know, branded as, I think, you know, by, by most of the UCF fan base, because people aren't really going to look at Hypel and think, oh yeah, this, you know, undefeated regular season in, in 2018 in the conference championship, they're going to see, oh, losing to Tulsa twice you know, the losses and, and him end up, you know, leaving for Tennessee. So I feel like that's, that's kind of perfectly representative for, 
for how people look at Heifel's time at UCF because they did. I mean, his team's got, you know, progressively worse. And I know 2020 was a weird year and, you know, they went from 10 and three to six and four. And it just, it was strange. It was strange circumstances. And Heifel, I will say this about Heifel. He was handed some awful circumstances considering Milton's injury, you know, first of all, and then having to deal with this whole COVID year where, you know, the team, the team just very wasn't, you know, they had those, all those opt-outs, you know, they lost some games and it turned every single, you know, UCF fan against him and they all wanted him gone. So I think, you know, I would say part of the, obviously the money is, is a huge reason for him going to Tennessee and the opportunity to coach in the SEC, all of that. But I think he's probably, I mean, he has to have heard, you know, the UCF fan base. He probably knew, you know, how everyone felt about him. So he was probably feeling pretty good to get out of here when he did. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the relationship Frost had with the fans. Not that Frost was some open guy, but just, you know. no George O'Leary. Respect. Well, let me tell you. (laughs) But I just, I I don't know. I I think, and honestly, you're talking about things he dealt with, Matt getting hurt right after Milton. I mean, people forget that Dylan Gabriel, in theory, would have been the third string quarterback in 2019. If they, maybe fourth with Brandon Wimbush. I mean, it's just, although Wimbush probably doesn't transfer without the Milton injury, but I just, it was so many dominoes that impacted. I think that his legacy, which right now I would describe as a shrug, I feel like that's how, like, how'd you feel about the Josh Apple tenure? Yeah, shrug, whatever. Yeah, it happened. <laughs> um, I think it'll really be informed by what happens in 2021. If Gus Malzahn has the seat, like a New Year's Six season with Dylan Gabriel, the type of season Heupel didn't get with him, then yeah, it, the narrative is going to change very quickly to Heupel didn't get the most out of his team. If UCF is, which I'm expecting to be more in that nine and three or 10 and two range, then I think the legacy or the narrative is going to be more probably towards Gabriel's legacy than Heupel's legacy. And so I think we just kind of have to see what happens this year before we really know how that's going to stand. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's honestly a perfect segue because we talked about, you know, Frost, having a better relationship with the fans than Heifel did. Heifel not really having a relationship with the fans. Gus Malzahn has, you know, in a few short weeks, just the fan base is just, it's loving him right now. And obviously they haven't played a game yet. The minute he loses a game, I think, you know, we'll see some, we'll see some, uh, some vitriol from the, from the fan base, but. I'm going to give you a I, hot I think, take right now. Okay, go ahead. I think that as of this moment, as of 6.31 PM on March 11th, which is when we're recording, I think that Gus Malzahn is the most beloved head coach in UCF football history. I actually yeah. do think that. It's no small coincidence that he has not coached a game yet, has not lost a game yet, because... I don't remember the Frost type being anything like this. I really I don't, don't either. No, it wasn't. And I think part of the reason is because, you know, we'll go back we'll go back a little bit to what people felt about, you know, pre-Frost UCF, but it was like, there, was, there wasn't this expectation, because now we've seen, you know, these last few years, what UCF can be consistently... And so people are like, oh, yeah, Malzahn can, you know, get us to New Year's Six consistently and, and, you know, make us take this brand to another level. And when Frost was coming in, it was like, oh, we just went 0-12. Like, there's no, like, we can't hype this guy up that much. Plus, I feel like, oh, my dogs did not like that take. Um, But, yeah, there was no, there was no really, and also it wasn't, I think, Frost coming in, he didn't have the same kind of pedigree that Malzahn did. Malzahn's coming from Auburn where he's had success. He's beaten Nick Saban, won some, you know, big games and all that. And Frost was still kind of somewhat of an unknown coming from from Oregon to take this head coaching job so I think that's part of the reason the hype is is where it is um but yeah I mean Malzahn has just done he said all the right things in the press conference and and got everybody fired up and then brought in a coaching staff that just has also kind of you know taken to the fan base really well and and just things are going really well right now and you, you just kind of wonder you know how long how long he'll stick around is he really you know in this for the long run like he says he is and like he's been insinuating that he is and just what, like, what can his legacy look like by the time he leaves UCF? Because from what he's saying, like what he's 
wanting to get accomplished what he's wanting to do for this program you know if he sticks around long enough to accomplish all of this he's going to leave as like the most decorated you know head coach in UCF history but we all know things don't always go according to plan so just kind of curious to see like what you know what happens with Gus Malzahn does this does this hype and this excitement you know stay at this level or you know does it kind of just taper off and, and get slowly slowly fading away and kind of just like oh yeah that didn't work well I think his entry is a lot less similar to Frost and Heupel's and a lot more similar to George O'Leary's he's and I mean, both O'Leary and Malzahn came in as older coaches who'd already had success at the Power Five level and could have coached at the Power Five level if they wanted to, probably. And O'Leary ended up staying for a decade and elevating UCF to become the program that it sort of turned into. And Malzahn obviously is, has a way higher bar because the program's already there. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't not believe him when he says he plans to stay here for long haul. It's like I said on an earlier podcast. I think he truly means it now. I don't know if he'll mean it when there's offers on the table, especially if UCF has a good year. I'm getting a little worried because he like he has no interest in pumping the brakes on expectations. I mean, he's like, we're going to be a top four team, this, this, and that. And I don't disagree that that's possible if he stays because I do think it's possible, but I hope that fans understand that I think he means that as a semi-long-term goal because yeah. 2021 is still not his roster. It's still a roster that lost a lot of guys from last year, and it's got probably the toughest schedule UCS faced in the last four or five years. So I just, I, I, it, it, it's just starting to concern me how many UCF fans are truly under the perception that UCF is going to just kind of waltz to. It's just going to be 2017 again this year, and I, yeah. I, I, I'm worried for what how their takes on Malzahn are going to change when that's not happening, because that's yeah. not going to happen. UCF is not going to be undefeated in 2021. I feel perfectly comfortable saying that right now remember remember that moment if they do go undefeated though because ucf is going to lose at least i'm gonna at least two games in 2021 you heard it here first this is not a team that can go undefeated (laughs) i'm sorry guys i wish it was but it's not man all the all the fans you gained back from like all the ucf fans you gained back from talking about frost and saying you were you were no longer in the minority i think you just kind of lost all those people i'm sorry i have to defend that take now it's like what about (laughs) we lost all of our offensive production signals to you undefeated no, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I just think, you know, the, the hype is, is too, is too high right now for you to be bringing everybody down and, and mellowing everybody out like this. Cause I think, you know, there, there is reality. You have to set it eventually. You no, know, yeah, no, I, no, I, I commend you for that because people need to, to kind of temper their expectations and, and realize that, you know, yeah, it's, it's okay. If UCF doesn't go undefeated this year, it's actually, it's okay. If they don't, you know, make a new year six bowl this year in Malzahn's first year, it's okay. If they don't win the conference this year, that doesn't mean, Malzahn's a failure and you know this whole experiment of bringing him here is is doomed to fail and he's going to be gone in three years that's not that's not the case it's just you kind of have to be careful with your expectations I think that's just a thing in life you know be careful with your expectations at all times you don't want to set yourself up for disappointment so Christian, just, I want to I want to commend you for, for doing you. this for the UCF fan base I don't think they're going to see it this way they're not going to see it like they're not going to see what you're doing now as like this heroic thing but maybe, you know, maybe there'll be a, a few, a few, you know, I don't know how many months, 10 months from now that are like, I'm glad Christian kind of made me take a step back a little bit. Well, my thing is for as much as I'm like, oh, UCF fans listen to me. I love you guys so much. And like, <laughs> I honestly, I love arguing with you too, because I just think I just love talking about UCF. So if you're listening to this and you think I'm an idiot, tell me that. Talk to me on Twitter about it. I will talk to you about it and I will explain it because yeah. we're all in this together. We all want UCF to succeed. <laughs> And I just, I, I just hope that 
and it, listen, Malzahn's kind of doing it to himself because I don't know what else the fans are supposed to think when he's like, we're going to win every single game for the rest of time. <laughs> but I just hope, I, I want us to kind of recontextualize 2021 less as UCF is back and more as this is the year for Malzahn to lay the foundation of what UCF can be under him. Because if we look at it through that lens, then we should be perfectly happy with a nine and three or 10 and two season where UCF has beaten some good teams, finishing ranked, getting back to doing what they're doing, but not necessarily being that team like they were in 2017, 18, where they're just steamrolling their way through a really, really tough schedule. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I think that's a good place to kind of lead this, this discussion because this is kind of the year for Malzahn to kind of get this program back on track and, you know, you lay the foundation, like you said, and the foundation is already starting to be laid a little bit. We'll move into you know a little bit of spring ball talk because spring football practice starts on Monday and, you know, the spring game is about a month away. And, you know, that's an exciting thing. You know, obviously the, we just talked about all the excitement and all of the, you know, what the fan base is feeling right now towards Malzahn and towards this 2021 season, we're going to start seeing, you know, these guys out and uh, on the practice field. And then of course in the bounce house, um, you know, come April and Christian, just real quick, because there's not a ton to talk about with spring ball yet. We'll have some more, you know, once spring ball actually starts, but just kind of curious to see like who are some guys you're looking forward to you know hearing about you know in terms of like practice reports and and seeing when it comes to the spring game so i know we both have lists do we want to go back and forth like we did with yeah i think we'll do that like we did last week yeah all right so i have three players that i am very curious to see what they do in spring ball and how they look the first one is obviously dylan gabriel now the thing about dylan gabriel is that this is a brand new offense obviously and it's an offense that typically requires a quarterback to be a lot more mobile than dylan gabriel has been the last couple seasons so I'm curious to see how he reacts to that. And I'm just curious to see, I mean, you know, he obviously took a leap from 19 to 20. Um, and I'm just, I'd like to see if he took another leap again, because I still, and I know it's my most unpopular opinion is I just don't really like, I, I'm not as enamored with Gabriel as the average UCF fan. I feel like he's still not in, the, like when we talk about the great court UCF quarterbacks of all time, like Culpepper, Bortles, Milton, he's not in that discussion for me yet. And he absolutely could be after this year if things break right. So I'm just really excited to see kind of like how I was excited to see moment going in 18. Like, who is he going to be in this new offense? How has he improved? I'm just excited to see what he can do. Yeah. I mean, you talk about making that leap and it's not unfair to say that he does, he needs to make another leap from his sophomore to his junior season. And I, I think, you know, we'll start to see a little bit in the spring of what he's kind of going to look like in Gus Malzahn's offense and what he's going to look like now that he's got two years of college experience under his belt. Um, you know, I, I think there's obviously high expectations for Gabriel people, like you said, people are enamored with him and, and they kind of see him as, you know, already and in some, in some respects in terms of numbers and, and stats and that kind of stuff, he is kind of on that level of, you know, all time greats, but I think legacy wise, if you're looking you know, if, if things go kind of how you and I are expecting them to this year, Gabriel will leave probably as, you know, uh, in, in the top five in terms of, you know, statistical, you know, in statistics for, for UCF quarterbacks, but he won't have nearly the, the pedigree of like accomplishments and all of that, that of guys like Bortles and Milton had. So, yeah, I mean, he's definitely, I think, not who actually I thought you were going to go with here because we talked about it a little bit before and you, you had mentioned. I know who you a, thought I was going to go with and yeah, I know who you're going to go with. <laughs> I'm actually going to go there right now and talk about Mikey Keene because it's, this is no, you know, no disrespect to Dylan Gabriel at all, but I'm just like, I'm always excited about like what's coming next. And I just want to know, you know, behind behind Gabriel, you know, I, I think it's, is it a foregone conclusion that Gabriel is going to be gone after this year? Barring something really unexpected, like him just having a bad year or an injury. Yeah, I would be yeah. really surprised if he's back after this year. It just feels that way. And I don't know. So 
I'm kind of just going off of that thought and that, you know, feeling that next year UCF will have a new quarterback that's not Dylan Gabriel. And so I'm kind of just curious to see who it will be. And I know there's been a lot of, a lot of talk about Mikey Keene uh, once he committed and signed with UCF. And I'm just kind of curious to see, you know, not only Keene, because of course there's Parker Navarro and Quadri Jones, who's still around. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see kind of all the quarterbacks aside from Gabriel, in addition to Gabriel, I guess I should, I should say, but mostly Keen, I just think that he could be the guy that we're looking at as, as the future quarterback for UCF and kind of want to see what he looks like in his first action and, and see, you know, how Malzahn thinks of him and just what he can do, um, you know, against UCF's defense. I feel like Quadri Jones has been here for like nine years. Is that just me? It does feel like it does feel like that, doesn't it? Yeah, like when you said, and of course, Quadri Jones, I'm like, I swear to God, every quarterback discussion I've had about UCF, it's like, and then Quadri Jones since I was like a child. I don't know why I feel yeah. that way. Um, <laughs> he does. I don't know. what. So he's a senior now, right? Is he a redshirt senior? If he's How not, I will be. If he's not, I will be shocked if he's not a redshirt senior. <laughs> I don't know how, yeah, I don't know how long he's been here. And then, of course, he left and then he I'm came back. It it's up. like he just restarted. I forgot about that. He, le- he left for like a couple months. And yeah. we we're like, oh, <laughs> bye, Quadri Jones. And then he was yeah. like, never mind, I'm back. <laughs> I remember being sad because I was like, oh, I, I kind of like, I mean, I just wanted to see like more of Quadri Jones. And and he was like, okay, yeah, I'll come back. Qua- um, this is not correct. What? Quadri, Qua- when do you think Quadri Jones, what do you think his first year was with UCF? 2017? 2018. Oh, really? He's only been here for three years. Did we have another that, quarterback named Quadri Jones who was <laughs> here before him? Who was previously, you know, a perfect passer and perfect passer rating with, you know, all these touchdowns. and UCF's like official website is wrong. That's not correct. I don't care. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about Mikey Keene too. He, it's like, it's one of those things where it's just, especially with the transfer market now, it's so difficult to project out even a year out who the quarterback is going to be. But like, he just seems like a stud. Like he was awesome in college. And like, I just, like, you, you, in high school, college is where he's going next. <laughs> Yes. And, uh, thanks, Bailey. That is how Thank that you works. for correcting me because I didn't catch that I said that at all. I was just going <laughs> to steamroll ahead with that. But I mean, he was amazing in high school. I re- definitely recommend looking up his highlights if you hadn't and looking up his stat lines. I mean, he was just absurd out in Arizona. So I'm I'm really excited for him. And I hope that he could be. And, and, I, and it'll be nice because 2022, that would be the year, right? Because this is 21. Yes. That would be the first time UCF has a new starting quarterback that's not a true freshman since like 2015. So that would kind of be is- an interesting uh, development pretty crazy to think about really yeah we started um, young here at ucf <laughs> we really do and, and i'll throw you i'll throw it over to you for your second player to watch this spring uh, my second one is a player that we saw last year uh do something very bad and then not play anymore and that was uh, johnny richardson who was uh he was a freshman running back last year we were kind of seeing him in the first couple games then against tulsa he fumbled on a kickoff return and hypo was like thanks for coming by that's it <laughs> Didn't see him again the rest of the year. He is like ridiculously fast. And I, I, I feel like we really sort of missed that Adrian Killens type back last year. And I, it seems like that's a role that he could fill. And I'm expecting that, especially under a new staff of this offense, he could be a big part of it. And I'm just really excited to see. And I know UCF had a running back transfer coming. I might have another one coming. So I don't really know how much playing time he'll get, but he's definitely a guy just from what we saw in those glimpses last year. I'm like, I want to see what this dude can do in spring ball. I want to see if he can make a name for himself and what happens there. Bentavious Thompson is also still around. I feel like in the same kind of realm as Quadri Jones, it seems like Bentavious has been here for quite a while as well. It also it? feels like he's cursed to always be UCF's third string quarterback. <laughs> like he's running back. Re- running back. Oh my God. What is happening to me? It's, it's, it's a crazy day. We've got, you know, you, you misspeaking, the dogs are you know driving me wild. So Mikey Keene's going to the pros and Bentavious Thompson's <laughs> a quarterback. He is switching um, to quarterback. But it does. It just felt like he was always stuck behind. First, he was stuck behind 
Killens and McRae. And then this past year it was Otis and McRae. And now we've got like transfers coming in. So he's probably <laughs> going to be around that spot again. It's just, and he's yeah. very good. He is. No, he is. And every time he gets the ball, it's like, you know, you're kind of just expecting something to happen. And it's just UCF running back room is so deep all the time that it's just like, he can't, he can't catch a break and he can't, you know, become a starter. Maybe we'll see him start. That'd be cool. I mean, I need, I need, I'm, a, I'm kind of rooting for him to be the starter, honestly. I need a quadri to Bendavia's handoff at some point this year. Oh, and not, like, not in the like waning moments of like a 40 point game. Is that, does that qualify or does it have to be like, it can, can it be? I was thinking like fourth quarter against Bethune Cookman, but yeah, we oh, could okay. see that well. like somewhere else too. I don't know. I'm assuming <laughs> I'm assuming Bentavious will be on the field before the fourth quarter against Bethune. Oh, yeah. I'm not, yeah. I'm not so but sure I'm saying get a package. Just get a second quarter. Like something happened in the second quarter. You're in the red zone. Get a red zone package in there for Quadri and Bentavious just, just to make this podcast happy. I mean, but, do, do we think Quadri can't hand off a ball? Like, I think he's capable of doing that. Why not just, do I don't it know. for a play? Yeah. I don't know what, what it is. It's it's like both of those guys are kind of just stuck in, in the you know, depths of the depth chart, but I've kind of just been stalling all this time because my second player is also Johnny Richardson. I didn't know we were going to go the same way on this, <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess there's not much more that I'm going to say that you didn't already cover, but I think people have kind of forgotten about Johnny Richardson and, and just the speed that he has and what he could look like in this UCF offense. I and mean, we saw it with Adrian Killens, you know, if he's another Killens type player, he's, he's got to be a big part of this offense because, you know, players like that are just, there's just a special combination of, you know, the speed and elusiveness that is going to be difficult for a defense to stop. So Richardson's somebody that I'm really interested in. And I really hope, um, you know, comes back this year and, and plays, uh, I don't that was just, that's just weird to see, you know, he fumbles and then Heifel's like, all right, you're, you're done here. Kid. Now in my, in my brain, I was like, Maybe it was because, oh, the red shirt rule and all that. But it's 2020. Everybody got a red shirt anyway if they wanted to use it. So I was thinking, yeah. like, maybe that's why we didn't see him the rest of the year. But that's not it. Like, and it I don't just, know if that's oh. – I don't know if that's what happened if it was a result of that. But it just is very weird that that play happened. And and and, and to be fair, it did swing the Tulsa game. But it's also like, yeah. okay, don't have a true freshman return kicks in a rain game, and that won't happen. <laughs> um, but And he was just gone after that. So I don't know. And also, like, when you think about it, there was well, – To be fair, that... he was on special teams still after that. But we didn't see yeah. him in, like, you know – but there were injuries, like there was injuries to McRae and Otis at different points, weren't there? And we still didn't really see him at all after that. It was just Bentavious and yeah, McRae and, and Otis were both banged up throughout the year, and that just he just did yeah. not rise at all. You would think that we would have seen more of Johnny Richardson, but we just didn't. And hopefully, we do in twenty twenty one. But we'll uh, we'll go ahead and move on to your your last player to watch, and then I'll give mine. My last player is another one that I feel like people have kind of just forgotten about as time goes on, but uh, Kevon Ahmad. Yes. Who is a receiver? Oh, yeah. You excited? I'm excited. Yes. He was, he's a receiver. He was UCF's highest rated recruit in 2018. I feel like we've just kind of forgotten about him. And I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what goes on, obviously, in practice or whatever. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and be like, he's being buried. But it's like, I just feel like he's a guy where UCF's just had so many absurdly good receivers. He just hasn't really had his chance yet to break in. And we haven't really seen much of him at all. But I was really excited about him when UCF got him. And I'm still excited about him. And I'm really, really hoping that new coaching staff, bunch of receivers are gone like all the receivers like none of them are there like i hope he's able to step up or at the very least we see him at least in a spring game and maybe in some practice and just see what he can do yeah i hope so and because it, it felt like when they got him in 2018 it felt like he was like oh you know this is like a dark horse guy as a freshman that you know could really could emerge and could be a guy to count on and then it didn't really happen then it came back and it was his next year wait so he got he got here in 2019 right uh eight i think it was 18 was it really i think it might well be whatever 18. it is every every year he's been here he's been like oh watch out for this guy he could emerge he's gonna yep. be like the dark horse and then he's just never really gotten the chance to 
um, you know, different, you know, different receivers have kind of kept him down the depth chart, but I think like there, this has to be the year that he does it. If, if he's going to do it, it's gotta be this year. Well, let's think about this. 18 was his first year here. Right. Are there, were there really ever any receivers ahead of him in the depth chart that just weren't here before him, except for Jalen Robinson, who obviously was a high profile transfer. I mean, I Marlon, Marlon yeah, I mean, was here before him. Davis was here before him. I mean, Nixon was here before Nixon got here the same time he did, but again, that's a transfer. So it's a little yeah. different. So yeah, I mean, that's I think part of it. Is he's just, just stuck. Yeah, there's been a lot of good receivers. So I mean, if, if it's it's going to happen, it's got to be this year. I think this is the year for him to actually finally step into that role. And yeah, I think there's there's a lot to be excited about with him, but we kind of just need to see it on the field finally. Um, and we'll, we'll wrap up here with my, with my final one. And this is kind of just assuming that he's going to be there for spring practice and for the spring game. But that's a, a recent addition, and that's Big Cat Bryant. We had to represent the defense here at least a little bit. And how can you not love a guy named Big Cat Bryant? That's just that's I think an all-time UCF name already, and he hasn't even played a snap yet. It's up there. What yeah. are what are some of the top UCF names in your opinion? Oh, I don't know. That's Other than Kevin Smith, of course. Like <laughs> Kevin Smith. I don't. You can't put that. I mean, Blake Bortles is a good one. Blake just, Bortles is a good yeah, one. Yeah, you got to go with that one. But Mackenzie Milton. What is it about the about the double? Uh, Double letter names. Yeah, like Dylan. McKenzie Milton. Is not that Dylan why Gabriel, Dylan? But... Is that why Dylan Gabriel's not good? Is it because he doesn't have a double name? If he went by like Dylan Maybe Gabriel, not. would we be like <laughs> set in twenty twenty one? Yeah, I don't know. They just start need to call him. Start calling him Gabe Gabriel, and then he'll be really good. Um, oh well, he's already really good, but maybe he'll he'll take UCF to a conference championship. Absolutely. But <laughs> back to Big Cat. Yeah, I think because we really don't know. Like looking at the roster, we don't know what the defense is going to look like at all. It's just that's kind of gonna be a fascinating part of spring ball is just seeing how the defense takes shape after such a bad year last year and after the coaching turnover. We'll see, you know, who kind of sticks around from you know the starting the starting uh, lineup from last year and who kind of steps up and you know obviously Big Cat Bryant as a transfer from Auburn I think is going to get um, you know some shine and he's going to be a guy that steps up pretty pretty quickly I think especially given his familiarity with with Gus Malzahn and some of some of these coaches and. I don't know. I just, I think this is, this is an exciting guy that obviously has a lot of talent. He's a captain at Auburn. And so if we get to see get our first gl- uh, glimpse of him in spring practice and in the spring game in April, I'll be really excited about that. And if we don't, then I'll be kind of sad actually. Yeah. Like you said, I just, I, and I told you when we were making these lists, I wasn't putting any defensive guys because I just don't really know what the defense is going to look like. Next it's hard. Year. Yeah. It's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. And, and I think, you know, that's going to be one of the, you know, the big storylines, uh, that we'll end up talking about, you know, once spring spring ball gets going. But, you know, that, that that's coming up on Monday, and, and we'll see. You know, it's just going to be nice to see some some football stuff on the timeline on Twitter and kind of get some of those practice videos. UCF's uh, social media game is is some of the best in the business. So we'll we'll it's surely the best see some in the great, business. Man. Yeah, we'll see some we'll see some great stuff um, coming out of spring practices. But we'll go ahead and uh, and move into the news section here. Uh, again, you know, this, this spring has probably been the craziest. Uh, we've seen in quite some time. Uh, one, one kind of interesting thing to note about all sports, UCF is starting to sell cutouts for, for various sports and they're doing it in like a, a inc- different increments um, for how much you can pay. It's a $50 minimum. It's like a donation and you can get yourself uh, in. I think they, they're doing some for, for actually the, the practice fields at fo- for football that I saw. And of course they're doing them, you know, volleyball, softball, baseball, and on all these other sports um, that are going on right now. So you want to see your face in the crowd um and you can't actually be there why not give that a shot um i know it looks it looks makes a stadium look better it looks fuller you know i think we saw at the super bowl it looked like uh, a sold out stadium so that just kind of looked a little bit more normal than than we're we've gotten used to over the last year or so 
Yeah, I'm glad now that we're like at the end of the pandemic, UCF has realized they can do cutouts. <laughs> yeah, so be it is, it is like weird that they're, two kind months. Of, <laughs> that they're kind of jumping on it late. And I guess it, maybe it's a Mahajer thing that he was like, oh, yeah, we should we should be doing this. So maybe, maybe he'll take them with him to Kansas. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> football wise, uh, pro football focus listed Tay Gowan as cornerback number five in this year's NFL draft, uh, ranked him as the fifth best cornerback. And I think Gowan's a guy that a lot of UCF fans maybe forgot about in 2020 because he opted out and we didn't get to see him play, but, you know, obviously a very, a very talented individual played really well in 2019 and looks like he has some, some nice pro prospects. So that'll be cool to see him uh, taking this year's draft uh, recruiting wise. Gus Malzahn got his first 2022 verbal commitment from uh, Lakeland offensive lineman, Miguel Maldonado. He chose UCF over the likes of Iowa state, West Virginia, and South Florida. So good to see UCF continue to, or to get back to recruiting Florida a little bit more and getting, uh, a player from you know Lakeland who's a program that you know turns out some good prospects so uh, good to see that and on, on a downer note uh, former assistant coach Tom Bland UCF announced this week that uh, he passed away he was a wide receivers coach for UCF's two first two varsity teams in 1979 and 1980 so of course our condolences to uh, his family um, men's basketball which of course this I mean recording on Thursday nights has really gotten to us these last couple of weeks because men's basketball and both both men's and women's basketball have had Thursday night games that we just couldn't really figure out how to record after so um, men's basketball they won 64 to 60 at ECU last Thursday after we finished wrapping up the uh, our recording of last week's podcast they finished the regular season 10 and 11 overall and 8 and 10 in the AAC they earned the number six seed in the AAC tournament to set up a first round matchup against number 11 seed ECU which is tonight as we're recording this so by the time this podcast is out UCF will either have moved on to play number three seed Memphis on Friday night or the season's over. So um, we'll, we'll be watching that uh, actually tipping off in a few minutes as we're speaking. Uh, Isaiah Adams was named the AAC freshman of the week for the third time this season, more than any freshman in the conference and more honors for Brandon Mahan and Darius Perry, who were uh, third team all AAC and Adams was named to the all AAC uh, freshman team. Women's basketball has, you know, been, and they're, you know, they're in the midst of, of a great run right now too. They earned AP, uh, AP votes in the, for the first time since 2018-19 season. And after beating South Florida last Thursday, they opened up the AAC tournament this past Tuesday with a 53-43 win over number seven seed Cincinnati. Then they beat number three seed Houston on uh, Wednesday night in the semifinal, 61-39. to And interesting to note, that moved them from the last team in, according to ESPN's bracketology, to the second to last team in which feels like a little bit ridiculous that it only moved them that much because Houston themselves was on the bubble uh, prior to Wednesday night's game. So we'll see what, what happens. Uh, UCF playing uh, for the AAC tournament championship tonight as we're recording this against South Florida. Um, so by the time you're listening to this, either you know UCF is AAC champions or you know they fell just short and they still have a strong uh, NCAA tournament case regardless, but obviously would be, would be nice to get a trophy and as Christian pointed out on Twitter uh, on Wednesday night with that amazing Star Wars meme, it would be a real trophy this time. And it would actually count. Uh, volleyball, they won 3 nothing against ECU last Friday and then 3-1 against ECU on Saturday. So they're now 10-1 overall, 4-0 in the AAC. And they're leading the AAC right now with just four games to go. McKenna Melville was once again named the AAC to the AAC's weekly honor roll. In softball, they took two out of three from Kennesaw State at home over the weekend. They won 5-1 on Friday and then started Sunday's doubleheader with a 7-4 win before losing 8-1 on Sunday to wrap up the doubleheader. 
Gianna Mancha was named the AAC Pitcher of the Week for her performance in the uh, opening game of the weekend. She pitched seven innings, gave up one run, and struck out seven. UCF then was uh, ranked number 24 by ESPN and the USA Today slash NFCA coaches poll, and D1 Softball had them at number 20. And this was all prior to Monday's game where they uh, they beat number two, Arizona, 2 nothing. Um, Gianna Mancha again pitched seven innings, three hits, no runs, nine strikeouts. And I think it was something crazy. They, they shut out, Arizona was shut out for the first time in a, a very, very long time. Um, so a huge win for that program. They got to 13 and three with that win, beating number two, Arizona. And then on Thursday, just before we recorded this podcast, they won seven one against FIU and they're now 14 and three overall. So it's been a heck of a season so far for softball. And, and we're <laughs> really excited to see how, how that season continues to take shape. Uh, and, you know, on the complete polar opposite end of, of what's going on uh, a little, little ways away in, in baseball, they were swept by Liberty over the weekend. They lost two to one on uh, Friday and then lost eight to three on the second game of the doubleheader on Friday. Then they lost three to two on Sunday. Colton Gordon was named the AAC's weekly honor roll. He threw a complete game on Friday and struck out 10 in a losing effort. Um, offense just couldn't get it done in that one. They did bounce back, however, with a 10 nothing win at UNF on Wednesday. So they're now four and eight overall in the season. And, you know, we'll see if they can kind of get things turned around before uh, conference play rolls around. Women's soccer, they dropped another one this weekend, uh, lost 1-0 to number 18 Memphis on Sunday. And, you know, despite the loss, goalkeeper Caroline Delisle was named the AAC's goalkeeper of the week. She faced 21 shots against number 18 Memphis. And she made nine saves. That's just, <laughs> that's a lot, uh, a, lot of, a lot going on. You know, I don't know if things fell apart defensively for UCF, but congrats to Caroline DeLau for that uh, honor, despite the loss. Men's soccer got on, back on track a little bit. They won 2-1 to one against Memphis on Saturday. It was the program's 400th win. They're now 2-3 and three overall in the season. Ariel, Ariel Hadar and Matt Douglas were named to the AAC's weekly honor roll. And a little bit of UCF soccer alum news. Uh, Cal Jennings, of course, UCF soccer great, signed with LAFC after transfer from Indy 11. And he's kind of had a weird journey the last couple of years. He was drafted 17th overall by FC Dallas in 2020. Then he didn't get a first team contract out of that. He ended up joining Memphis 901 of the USL championship last July. He scored nine goals and 14 appearances uh, with them. Then he signed with Indy in December. And before he even got to play with them, actually, he got uh, transferred over and he signed now with the uh, Major League Soccer's LAFC. And I don't understand how, I guess, how some of his MLS USL stuff works because, or yeah, because he gets transferred from Indy to LAFC, but LAFC is having to give up a 2022 third round pick to Dallas for Jennings college rights. They drafted him, but they didn't give him a first team contract. How do they still have his rights? Do you know what that's about? You're asking the wrong guy. I have no idea. I don't, I was reading that. I was reading that was like, this makes no sense to me. So maybe that's something I'll read into when I get bored inevitably in the next few days. Um, women's tennis, they won four to three against number 24 Furman on Saturday, then seven, nothing against FAU on Sunday. They're now nine and three overall, and they're ranked number 16 in this week's ITA rankings. Valeria Zaleva won, uh, AAC player of the week. So congratulations to her men's tennis. They won seven, nothing against tennis on Sun or against tennis against Stetson on Sunday, then six to one against South Alabama on Tuesday. South Alabama was actually receiving votes. So that was a, a nice win for men's tennis. They're now six and two overall. But before, uh, prior, I guess, prior to Tuesday's game, they dropped from number 19 to number 21 in this week's ITA rankings. And finally, women's golf, they didn't play last weekend, but they're still number 25 in this week's golfstat.com rankings. And finally, looking at the road ahead, uh, the schedule before 
next Thursday's podcast that we'll record uh, episode nine. Women's basketball, of course, has uh, the game tonight uh, against South Florida, and they'll have selection Sunday and hopefully an NCAA tournament um, appearance, another one for Coach Abe. And, you know, I guess, of course, check UCS Women's Basketball's Twitter for a first-round matchup and date uh, date and time for that game because we'll just put it out there, you know, good vibes there in the tournament. That's what we're we're just going to go with that, aren't we? Are we going to go with that? You're not going to give me anything here? I Yeah. All right, <laughs> we're cool, gonna go, well, cool, we're going. I just don't want to, because, like, we're, we're recording before the game got played, so I just don't want to, like... Say well, yeah, no, but we're since the people listening know more than we do. But we're putting the good vibes out there, and then when they do win, they'll be like, "Oh, the good thing they put the good vibes out because they won." There you go. But I think regardless, they have a good, a strong case to to make the NCAA tournament. So we'll see how that unfolds in the coming days. Volleyball will play uh, Friday and Saturday against uh, at Cincinnati. Softball has a weekend series at FAU, and then a doubleheader Wednesday at UNF. Baseball, they have a weekend series against UNF. Uh, they play Friday and Sunday at home, but then they'll play Saturday in Jacksonville. And then they play Tuesday against FAU. Women's soccer, they'll play uh, back on the pitch Sunday against ECU. Men's soccer's got a tough one on Saturday at number nine, SMU. Women's tennis is uh, back Saturday against UNF. Men's tennis, Saturday at FAU. And then both golf teams are back this weekend on the courses. Um, Sunday through Tuesday, Men's golf will be at the General Hackler Championship hosted by Coastal Carolina. And women's golf on Monday and Tuesday will be in South Carolina for the Briars Creek Invitational. So again, a lot going on. Um, exciting time for UCF. And ex- speaking of exciting, we've got Christian's Uniform of the Week coming up here. And we'll, we'll kind of recap the first two weeks of this. Men's soccer won uh, the first one with the black shorts and the gray tops with the Pegasus sleeve. And last week it was women's basketball with their black uniforms with the pewter number. So Christian, I'll give it away to you and you'll go ahead and uh, give us your uniform of the week for this week. So my three finalists this week, as you may have seen on Twitter, were baseball's white Pegasus uniform, which is beautiful. Baseball's white pinstripe uniform, which is also beautiful. Baseball has a lot of good white uniforms. And once again, the men's soccer, gray shirts, black pants uniform. Uh, Twitter with 41% of the vote chose soccer. That was their pick. And um, there were some people. That's a surprise to me. Even men's soccer waited. Men's soccer replied and said they've submitted their vote. I'm assuming they voted for themselves. They didn't <laughs> clarify, but I would expect that that's what they did. Dear men's they, soccer, if you're listening in the future, please share your voting choice. Maybe they really liked the Pegasus uniforms. I feel like the men's soccer account and I have bonded ever since I asked them how to get tickets and they said tickets are free. Um, <laughs> but anyway, there were some other people in the comments who said that Pegasus is the obvious winner. And they were wrong. UCF men's soccer takes it again. Oh, Bailey's face is wow, not good I am, right now. I am, this is a shocker right now. I am not. I went I back and forth that. on this one. And what I just came down to is one, I love pewter. And two, the baseball uniforms are awesome. Those Pegasus uniforms are the best uniforms they have. And I know that I'm already picking a repeat winner after in week three. <laughs> that soccer uniform is just, it's so good. I just can't not look at it. I can't look at it and not pick it. It's so nice. Yeah, this is a surprise to me. I, I to, It's to a surprise to me vote, too. I thought I was I, picking Pegasus. I, I did vote for the Pegasus uniform, so my my choice did not win this week. But yeah, I mean, those those are some good ones. Those are good kits for, for men's soccer. And again, I, I think I'll join UCF Uniform Tracker and say, can we get some of these kits out in, this, in the bookstore? Because I will pay top dollar for one of those, um, especially especially the pewter ones. Those are those are wonderful. Um, so yeah, congrats to men's soccer. They're uh, two time winners in three weeks for those, those for, the, kits. for the same kit. <laughs> yeah. For the same kit. So <laughs> how about that? Um, before we get out of here, I just, uh, this is a kind of a story that I saw on Twitter this week and I'm sure 
a lot of UCF fans have seen it and it kind of touched my heart and I think it was worth sharing. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming her name is Lynn at Lynn Cheek AXO on Twitter. Um, you know, she tweeted that she committed $25,000 in her estate planning to the UCF football excellence fund and 25,000 more to the UCF marching Knights. Um, as I understand it, she's going through chemotherapy as of right now. And I want to echo others within night nation and including Terry Mahajer and saying, we hope that money doesn't come through anytime soon. Um, you know, of course our, our thoughts and prayers and best wishes are, are with Lynn, but that's just, I think an amazing, amazing testament to, um, you know, what she feels about UCF. And, and she talked about how, you know, UCF, some of her best memories in life have, have come at UCF. And um, it's just, it's just amazing, an amazing thing. And like I said, we, we wish the best for Lynn and, and hope that, you know, she's feeling, feeling happy, feeling healthy right now and getting ready to see uh, UCF take home some championships, um, you know, in the coming days and months. Um, so shout out to Lynn and, you know, I, as someone who I think, I think all of us have, have known someone or has someone close to us affected by cancer. Um, and it, it's just an awful thing. And so really, really hoping for the best for, for Lynn and, and thank you for, you know, of course, being a UCF fan and hopefully a, a listener of this podcast, hopefully someone gets this to her, but wishing the best to Lynn. Without a doubt. That, that was really, really touching gesture. And I know we were talking about before the podcast, but just agree with Terry wholeheartedly that hope that's not something that we see for a very, very long time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, again, best wishes to Lynn. And that's, that's awesome. An awesome story I thought was, was really touching. So um, until, until next week, recording episode nine next week, until next week, you can find us at on Twitter at Bailey J Adams, 22 at by CA Simmons and at night sports. Now, thank you guys so much for listening to the Pegasus podcast. Bye everybody.